back, folks. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Uh, and we're going to tackle what's going on in our city. There's so many things you can talk about Baltimore, but there was this article in The Sun uh, that was a pretty profound article pointing out what is happening in our city in terms of the violence taking over our city. Citizens See a City in Crisis. It was written by Kevin Rector. Uh, and uh, others who helped him on this piece. And it was, we, we know we are in trouble in this town. And the question is, what do we do about it? We see in some ways the mayor's office in a bis, bit of disarray in terms of not filling the criminal justice seats that need to be filled in the city, in the, in the, off, in the office. The police department seems to, if we keep saying this has nothing to do with it, many people do, but I would argue it does, have pulled back since the Freddie Gray trials of the officers in terms of their commitment to what it has to do, but that's not the, but policing is not the only solution to what we are facing here in this city, uh, but we clearly cannot allow it to continue uh, it, unabated. Uh, and what do we do about it? Where do we go with this? And so we have with us here Luke Broadwater, who's a reporter for The Sun, who's been covering city hall and local politics, joins us often. Luke, it's always good to have you with us. Appreciate you be taking the time to join us by phone. Good morning. Uh, David Troy's in the house now, co-founder of 410 Labs and co-founder of the Baltimore Election 2016 Facebook uh, page, which is now just Baltimore City Voters. Good to have you with us. Joshua Harris is in the house. He is a community activist and, of course, former Green Party candidate for mayor. Joshua, good to have you in the house as Thank well. Thank you for having me. And we're going to introduce Maurice Van. So this morning I got on Facebook, I often do in the morning, just to read what people are saying was preparing for my show. And I came across this piece by Maurice Van on someone else's Facebook page. Uh, and he wrote this piece that connected London to Baltimore in a really interesting way, which I'll let him talk about at the, at the top of this program. And Maurice is a doctoral candidate at the City University of New York Simpleman School of Social Work. He's a guest lecturer at Columbia University, and his current research investigates the role formerly incarcerated people returned citizens played in quelling the unrest and cleaning up Baltimore after the uprising, uh, and that... Uh, um, it appears that the civic engagement is assisting them with not reoffending, and his words were really, really interesting. So we started communicating back and forth this morning, and I said, "Why don't you just come on the show with us today?" And here he is. And Maurice, welcome. Good to have you on the air with us. It's great to be here. And, and you all can join us here at four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. You can write to us here at talk at signershow.org by email. We want to get your ideas and thoughts, uh, or tweet us at Mark Steiner. But we want to get some solutions on this program. Talking about what we need to do. So, Maurice, would you just lay out what you wrote, which so intrigued me, rather than me trying to interpret your words for you, please just tell us what you were saying. Um, after I heard about uh, the terror attacks in London, uh, I began to think about, you know, how outrageous and despicable those attacks were, and then think about them in comparison to what we know the levels of violence are in the city of Baltimore uh, right now. And it just dawned on me that I would trade um, those terror attacks for what's going on in Baltimore right now any day of the week. Um, the city of London has approximately 8.7 million residents. Uh, they have on average 170 murders per year throughout the entire city. Uh, Baltimore has just over 600,000 residents and we have nearly 300 murders or around 300 yeah. murders or more a year. Um, we have, uh, uh, well, London has 14.5 times as many people, yet we have 1.5 times as many murders. Uh, if Baltimore were the size of London with their population, we'd have on average around 5,000 murders per year at our current murder rate. Um, if Baltimore were able to be as safe as London, we'd have fewer than 15 murders per year. And 15 murders per year is unfathomable. It's, it's unthinkable. Uh, even reducing down to 100 murders per year is beyond what most people think is capable uh, for the city. So, And I, let me just also point out that as you wrote to me by email this morning, you're not writing this as a detached person, oh. as someone who hasn't experienced existence itself at this level. Absolutely. Um, so my background, um, you know, my, I, as I wrote you earlier, uh, my mother passed away when I was uh, about six years old um, of a cocaine overdose. Uh, at the age of 19, I was incarcerated on an assault and a weapons charge uh, for which I was absolutely guilty. 
Um, and since then, I've gone on to work in the jails and the courts in Baltimore, Annapolis, D.C. Uh, I'm now pursuing my doctorate degree. I'm a doctoral candidate at the Silverman School of Social Work in New York. Um, and I write about uh, returning citizens, uh, their contribution, uh, and how we need to engage them in order to begin to resolve some of the issues of violence uh, that we have in our community, which is why what's going on in the city around the safe streets budgeting is so problematic to mm -hmm. me. And that's what we want to tackle here. And also, let me just read a quote from one of the things I read this morning. Let me open it to our panel here. And all of you out there are 410-319-8888. You talk about, you wrote, my work and research takes me all over the city in interesting hours. Yesterday, I spoke to a young black security guard at Johns Hopkins Hospital. I asked him a simple question in passing. How are you doing? He replied, I'm just trying to stay out of this war. They're killing everybody out there. They'll kill you if you look at them wrong. If you're in your car or walking to your car, it doesn't matter. They're murdering for fun. Which is the, which is the, that's absolutely the truth. And what I found uh, so interesting about that is, this wasn't someone who I was interviewing as a part of my research. This was someone who was escorting me into the building, who I said, "Hello, how are you doing?" And that was their response. Uh, that's why it struck me at the time and, and kind of stayed with me. Um, so this is, these are the conversations that people are just having in passing, that you can't even walk to your car or walk from your car, you know, into the building uh, without the fear of looking at someone the wrong way um, and ended up being shot. So th this is our reality, and it doesn't have to be our reality, though. This doesn't have to be. I don't believe this has to be our reality. And I'm gonna, uh, David, I'll let you jump in first, and we'll go around the room. I mean, I, I'm going to go back to... The time when I was in the early 70s when I was both a community organizer in this city and was a youth worker and therapist working with young people in the streets and in our prisons. And I saw my work then as not just as a therapist, but as a therapist who was also an organizer, working with young people to do something different in their lives where they also could become their own political force as well as working on their own adjusting to the society and not being consumed by it, but how they can become a political force to change their communities and, and turn things around. We have to do things in, in ways we're not doing them. We do, need more, we do need the police to do their job, but we need a different job being done in our community that doesn't just rely on the police. Well, I certainly agree with that, Mark. I think, you know, anything that we can do to kind of knit society back together is a positive force right now. And I think that one of the things that we have to look at is, you know, what are the, the goals of something like terrorism, especially, you know, the reporting on terrorism, all the constant fear-mongering. We even saw the Baltimore police this week issue a statement on the attacks in London and, you know, said that they were doing increased, you know, vigilance here in Baltimore, which is, you know, fine. But again, you know, are we really at risk of that kind of international terrorism here in Baltimore relative to all the other things that are going on here already? I, I agree with Maurice. I think that, you know, that's really not uh, where we should be putting our energy. And I think, you know, we need to be looking hard at exactly, you know, how we're spending money within the police department, how we're spending money on police relative to youth programs, and you know, try to figure out how we're gonna knit our city back together before we worry too much about what the global fear-mongering crowd wants us to worry about. Yeah, um, there's, there's so many so many layers to this, and I think that often um, the first to attack, of course, or not get attacked, but to really look at and evaluate is policing and our methods. And I have been uh, disappointed uh, thus far to see any real um, substantive change in the way that police officers engage. I live in West Baltimore, and if I have my suit on, I get treated great. But if I don't, I just have on sweats uh, and a hat. Uh, it's terrible. Just yesterday, I was actually cleaning out my backyard, uh, and a young man who I know in the neighborhood who's uh, not a troublemaker, stays out of trouble, he was coming through the alley, going to his house, and um, two police officers were following him, uh, clearly, and then they just, they saw me there, and they said, oh, we were just checking back here to make sure no one was, and then he stopped, and he said, you guys were following me, uh, just say it, and they told him to shut up and learn some respect, and then no one said they were following him, and I'm like, why would you guys engage that way? And it was obvious that they were following him. Uh, but if they had taken um, just a, a couple minutes to actually get to know people in the neighborhood, it's very clear and evident to know who is who, right? Um, but we're not seeing those uh, initiatives being taken as far as community policing and what that looks like. But that's just one layer to it, of course. There's the layer to where we have to focus on engaging and building healthy youth and making sure that they uh, have the opportunity to remove themselves um, 
from some of the things that are happening in the streets and the things that they deal with in their everyday lives that are unfathomable to some people to imagine that children deal with these things. Um, the amount of students and youth that have been murdered uh, in some of these schools this year alone is unheard of in other places, right? And so what is the trauma and what are we doing to deal with that trauma with our young people to make sure that they have some way of uh, healthily coping um, with that damage to them? Um, what are we doing to ensure that we are giving opportunities um, for people who are returned citizens or people who've been in these environments to not only help, but to be paid to help engage these situations, right? So Safe Streets is an example of where you have people that are from the community could be paid to do this work. Uh, and, and that also helps to build a healthy economy and healthy communities when you're putting money into programs like that. Uh, so there's there's so many different layers here that need to be dealt with. And we're seeing strides and steps, but just not in a large enough capacity, if you ask me. So uh, let me ask you, Luke Broadwater. I mean, I'm wondering, as you cover City Hall, I mean, are there people engaged in the city council? Are there people engaged in the mayor's office that are actually having conversations about how to do this beyond um, they're, they're being in kind of flummoxed by what's happening with the police and with public safety and dealing with it as public safety? Are other kind of conversations taking place? Yeah, certainly all the time. I think they're really struggling to come up with um, what to do. Um, if you look at the mayor's office right now, they, they do have a lot of expertise in economic development and in education. Um, but they've let the uh, mayor's office of criminal justice uh, basically go vacant for, for months. And you've had three directors now in six months, uh, people leaving, half the office has left. Um, so the sort of um, uh, intelligence of the uh, on, on criminal justice issues inside the mayor's office is, I think, by everyone's acknowledgement, lacking right now. The mayor says she's looking for a new director. Um, so they're really relying on the police commissioner, Kevin Davis, to provide the crime guidance and crime strategy. Um, what's been put forth so far are these transformation zones, which are for relatively small areas in some of the... Um, toughest neighborhoods. Um, and, and it does seem that the transformation zones have had some success. They've, they have a lot of police uh, resources there, but also health and sanitation and just really trying to work on these four low areas. But at, at the same time, their success has not uh, uh, spread to other parts of the city where we are seeing uh, record homicides this year. So I, I do think they're, they're looking for ideas uh, to try to fix these problems, but uh, none are readily apparent. So let me open the phones here, and then we come back and really wrestle with ideas about what to do that are different, and how do we get those ideas put into the mainstream here at, at 410-319-8888. But let's go to the phones first, and Tom, you're on the air. Welcome. Oh, good morning, sir. And morning, Mark Tom. sounds like your cold's a little bit better. Thank you. <laughs> Anyhow, like, uh, my son was number 199 in August 2015. Oh, I'm thinking that. that if 199 people were killed at one cell in a harbor by a terrorist, it would be a big deal. But in August 2015, 199 people killed in Baltimore. It didn't seem like a big deal. I don't understand if like, the government would go into resources for a terrorist attack for 199 people down the inner harbor. But what are you doing that in August of 2015 when my son was number 199? What are they doing? I'm so sorry about your son being murdered, by the way, Tom. It's a hard thing to even talk about. Well, it's, uh, it's easy just when you're talking with friends on your show. It's not that hard to do. I appreciate Thank that. You, uh, I appreciate that. Up, sir. Thank you, Thank Tom. You. What were you going to say, Maurice? Um, I agree 100% with this sentiment, you know. And I'm, I'm, I'm really just sorry to hear that uh, about your son. And the other thing is, you know, at that time, 199 murders was something to be celebrated. Mm. If we ended the year at 199 murders, uh, there'd almost be a ticker tape parade downtown. And it is shameful Mm -hmm. and inexcusable. So what, uh, let's talk a bit about some alternative ideas here about what, and how do we get them, how do you make, how do you get the, the ideas, alternative ideas about what to do in this city at the forefront of the conversation, not as begging for a million dollars for safe streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, 
And and you have the Greater Baltimore Committee, which I would love to have in this program in a, in a roundtable discussion, saying that we should not cut the police budget. It would be a disaster for the city. Um, well, you know, <laughs> let's put an asterisk on that. I mean, Jane Miller the other day was reporting that the 2018 fiscal year uh, police budget was going to get to about $597 million. Now, granted, that is a big part of that is, is, is you know, to fund the uh, pension fund. But, I mean, you know, we're getting into where this is an incredible amount of money. And I think, you know, one of the main problems is as much as I'm in favor of, you know, doing new, creative, interesting things, I mean, we still have not done the basics, which is to inspect, you know, the full budget of the police department and have that open to public view. Hmm. And I think if we were able to do that in some level of detail, we'd have the ability to kind of go, okay, well, these priorities don't quite make sense with what the public's priorities are, and we'd be able to revisit some of how we spend our money. But, I mean, you get into talking about that's, you know, a quarter of the budget. You know, that's a lot of money. So I think we need to, you know, keep focusing on the basics and be looking at how we allocate money because that's, that's, that isn't a reflection of what our priorities actually are. And it's, it's, it's totally accurate because just like we're saying, we can't Joshua just Harris. beg for money for safe streets. Throwing money at the problem and throwing money at the police department are, are the that exact same so thing. Far. So it's, <laughs> it's, it doesn't change outcomes, right, unless we uh, really look at change of um, culture and implementation of practices. And we haven't seen that substantively in the police department, yet we continue to throw money um, at it. And then here we are arguing, well, where do we get a million dollars to fund safe streets from that has statistically proven results? Uh, and so that's just mind-blowing for me how we throw money over here to the police department, but then we can't find it for something that has actually shown proven results, right? Or even getting officers to train and work with Safe Streets on how to engage, right? What does that look like? How can we partner here uh, on an initiative and use include Safe Streets in the police budget? Uh, there's and, and one of the people who gets who doesn't get much mention, I think, is Deputy Police Commissioner Daryl D'Souza, who's been working with the International Association of Chiefs of Police for the last six months and going into communities, interviewing community members, and figuring out how we can have more effective ways of engaging the community and community police relations. And since my campaign, I've worked with them on several community initiatives, including the Youth Summit. Uh, and we're not really seeing that work being implemented and what those practices can actually look like from our police department just yet. Yeah, I was it, just it, at a, a budget sorry. hearing last week um, in which Safe Streets and Ceasefire were both talked about at some length. And it, it seemed that the administration was not committed to providing regular funding every year from the general fund to these programs, which I think there's a decent amount of science behind to say that they have, have had success. Um, and so they're relying on grant funding or partial funding for the programs, which may or may not come through given, you know, the environment in, in, the, in D.C. and Annapolis. Um, and yet we spend $500 million in general funds on uh, the general operations of the police department. And I think there's a desire among uh, most on the city council to see cuts in some of these general funds for uh, a style of policing that they believe is not effective and uh, the redistribution of this money for general, every year, consistent funding for some of these programs um, that are seen as more innovative and, and could provide some success. Maurice, go ahead. I just quickly want to make two points. The first is a very unpopular position. But we need to start talking about pay for performance, right? We cannot continue to increase policing budgets and see no decrease in our murder rates or no decrease in our violent crime rates. If we can begin to connect uh, teachers' performance with how students are doing on standardized tests, we need to start being able to connect our policing budget with, how our, with our crime rate and, and overall violent crime in the city. Uh, we can't. We have to begin to find some way to hold uh, uh, hold our police accountable, especially for the amount of money, the portion of the budget that they're taking. The other point I want to make is um, what we have seen with our police department stealing overtime pay mm -hmm. is unconscionable yep. yeah. and has to be a part of the discussion, uh, particularly when we can't. The, the things we can't do on one hand for our students in our schools to see police. Uh, lying, stealing, and taking advantage of, uh, overtime, of overtime pay at the expense of these children, on the other hand, uh, cannot be tolerated under any circumstances. We need to have those conversations about what, uh, uh, um, you know, a pay for performance might look like for our police what, um, and uh, how we can address 
uh, the stealing of overtime pay and what that's doing to our overall budget. Yeah, I mean, we have some of these officers that are getting, with overtime, more money than what the mayor is making. Yes. That is not reflective of our priorities as a city. It's bizarre. So we have a lot of callers, and we're going to get to these callers in just a moment here. Um, I, I want to read this tweet from Bobby Marvin Holmes that came at, at Mark Snyder. Uh, he wrote, um, we need to concentrate resources in the areas with the highest rate of shootings and homicides. And I think that's part of what we have to start talking about. I mean, we have... look, we. We separate things as if they're not connected. Mm-hmm. Right. When you take Port Covington and you put a billion dollars into Port Covington and there's no obligation, no obligation for them yes. to have housing for the poorest people in Baltimore <laughs> to live there. When there's no obligation to open it to black businesses. Or to put a shovel in the ground. Or to put a shovel in the ground. (laughs) Then there's no connection to the lives of the poorest, most dispossessed people in Baltimore. That is a crime. Yeah. Yes. You can't invest a billion dollars of our money. Economic violence. Economic violence and not have it affect. My bottom line for politics is if our public investments in private concerns do not affect the lives of the poorest people in this city, they shouldn't be spent. I mean, I'm just tired. We just can't keep doing this. We can't, we can't you know I mean? We're, we're the dispossessed, dispossessed of this city are truly dispossessed. Uh, I think when I, you, I'm, I'm sorry, but when, when you speak to, uh, um, you know, focusing our policing on certain areas, as the, as the tweet stated, when you look at the Baltimore Neighborhood Indicator data, hmm. right, the Binia data, and you get down to it, into the neighborhoods, and you even go a little below the surface, you begin to see that we have some blocks that are experiencing five, 10, 12 murders per year, right? What is that doing to the children who live on those blocks? Mm. Right. Traumatizing them for life. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So this isn't, we're, we're really not talking about, you know, this, that this is something that is affecting the entire city. No one is talking about it that way, right? So we have to begin to focus our money and focus our policing efforts on these, what they term, hot spots or, 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 or whatever, um, because they are in desperate need. Desperate need. It is nothing but a war zone if 12 people on your block were murdered in one year. Right. And those yeah. are the same blocks. David Troy, we're going to take a break here. We'll come right back to you. And these phone calls, we have a lot of calls. We're going to come right to the phones. These are also the same neighborhoods where you have to say, you're not going to turn the water off. Yes. Mm. Right. You're not going to evict people from their homes. Right. This is has got to stop. That's the trauma we're giving Correct. to people in this community. Mm-hmm. That has to end if we have a, even a chance, a remote chance, of saving people's lives in this city. Agree. Yep. We're going to come right back. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show, looking at the state of our city here. I want to remind you on the way back to this conversation, The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information at www.mecu.com. And we are here with Luke Broadwater, reporter for The Baltimore Sun, David Troy, co-founder of 410 Labs, and and the man who runs the City Voters Facebook page, uh, Joshua Harris, community activist and former Green Party candidate for mayor, Maurice Van, doctoral candidate at the City University of New York Silverman, Silverman School of Social Work, guest lecturer at Columbia University, working on uh, his research now is with formerly incarcerated people, returning citizens, their role in quelling unrest and cleaning up the city after the uprising. And you all are 410-319-8888. Let's go right to the phones. And Daphne, you're on the air. Welcome. Hi, Good morning, yes. Daphne. Good morning. Uh-huh. Fathers of murdered sons and daughters. How you doing, Miss Daphne? All right, fine. Good to talk to everybody. I'm just so concerned. I know we have a long-term goals we need to be working on, but in the short term, we're losing 300 some of our children a year, and it is so heart-wrenching. What can we do in in the short term right now that's effective? Because we're out there on the battlefield like every day in these communities talking to these young men and stuff and hearing their stories. And we, 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 we just had a, we had a loss because there's no support from the community. It's got to be the community. It's, it's not the man. It's not the police. Who acts up in front of a police officer? Who shoots somebody in front of a police officer? 
They're not going to do it. They, they in the neighborhood, they doing this, and people are watching them, and people aren't saying anything because it's a cultural problem. Our goal is to be proactive and, and allow us. They will not allow us to come to them schools and come to a hickey in places like that, so we can talk to them when they at their weakest at their weakest point. We need to we need to help from the to get us in those places so we can talk to them children. Why everybody else is working on the systemic issues as far as food, hunger, poverty, and all that. Mm. You got to have, we, we need a short term effect right now, immediately. So, how can we do that? So, how can we do that? How can, how, what, what in the short term has to be city policy that begins to address this in ways that Daphne just talked about and ways that Bobby Marvin Holmes was talking for in his tweet? I think that um, Ms. Daphne brings up a great point with getting into the schools. I mean, we saw it on The Wire. Uh, we mentioned that if you want to impact these young people and prevent them from getting to that point to where they become part of the problem, we have to get to them early. And we do. There's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy around being able to have programs and bring them into the school to talk to youth about these issues or what they're dealing with in their community. But I think that even that isn't an immediate solution. You're looking at preventing five, ten years later um, by getting to them as early as sixth grade, quite frankly, um, because that's before they've made up their mind. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes by the time that they get to high school, they're already ingrained and they've been uh, become a part of this culture that has um, sucked them up because they don't see much opportunity beyond that, right? There's a sense of hopelessness that exists that we have to break and we have to get to them while they're young to give them that sense of hope. So right now, look, Rob, yeah. there's this $13.5 million surplus people are arguing about a city and city council and city hall, right? Right. This, and so where's the, where are those arguments going about where that money's yeah, supposed so, to go? I mean, we're going to see this come to a head today. Um, there's uh, uh, the city councils once again taking up the mayor's budget. For about a week now, they've been asking her to dedicate that money to the school system and to after-school programs for youth that they say about 6,000 kids will be out of it out of after-school programs this year if, if the mayor doesn't restore um, some of this money that was left out of the budget. Um, and they, they think it's a public safety matter. Um, the mayor's office has yet to commit to do that, so the city council has taken it upon themselves to begin cutting uh, the budget, including $2 million from police administration, including the whole budget bureau. I think that was largely out of frustration at the, at the budget chief, um, et cetera. Uh, so, and there, there could be even more uh, deeper cuts this afternoon if the mayor's office doesn't relent. Um, of course, the, the way the city charter works because of the strong mayor system, only the mayor can rededicate this money to new purposes. So the city council can cut all they want, but they can't actually make it go to what they want it to go to. It's up to the mayor to agree to do that. Um, so, and one of the things they do want to fund with it is the Safe Streets program. Right now, um, uh, some of the council have said we want to expand this to nine sites. Right now we're in danger of losing funding for all but about one or two of the sites. Um, and if you really believe that Safe Streets works, that these uh, ex-offenders can intervene and stop some of the violence, um, then, like the city council does, then you're going to push for that money to also go to the state, state Safe Streets program. And ceasefire... Um, the director was just testifying, which is the, the call-ins where you bring in um, ex-offenders who are believed to still be uh, involved in criminality, and you tell them, hey, we're going to either throw the book at you or we're going to help you. We're going to help you find jobs. We're going to get you training, education, whatever you need. Unfortunately, he said only the um, punitive side of that has been robustly funded, and the, the aid side has not been well-funded. And so the, the positive alternative to get out of the game, so to speak, um, has not been well-funded. So I think the city council is looking at those two programs as maybe short, some, some short-term help. But, of course, the, the larger problems are the, the deep poverty, um, the structural racism, et cetera, that is... Um, still all too prevalent, especially in East and West Baltimore. So before we get to what you about, I'll say something, Maurice. Um, to, Ms., to Ms. Daphne's point or question, um, uh, from my perspective, you cannot turn the violence around in the city of Baltimore without engaging returning citizens, period. Because of what we've done with mass incarceration, 
at times in the city, 50% of men between the ages of 18 and 45 are under the supervision of corrections. Uh, with that large a percentage of your African American male population under the supervision of corrections, you cannot change what's going on with the city without engaging them, okay? They can't be left out in the cold uh, to continue to be a negative influence on the youth who they see every day on the streets. If you want to change the youth, you have to change their role models. Mm -hmm. You have to change their role models, and you have to engage these returning citizens. Which means you have to take that $13.5 million and more and reinvest it in the communities to begin to make that change immediately. Absolutely. And on that note, I had a question for Luke. I mean, I understand that the mayor is interested in uh, putting that money towards paying down the police uh, pension uh, deficit. Um, is she making any kind of, you know, really strong argument as to why that's more important than these youth programs? I mean, does she have some kind of a coherent statement about why we shouldn't be funding these youth programs through so the budget? All we've heard, we haven't actually heard from her directly on that specific issue. We've been hearing from the budget director. Um, the mayor has been sort of letting Andrew Klein be the voice of her administration on that. I'm not sure whether that gives her some room to then come in and be a hero at the end of the day or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but I haven't heard directly out of her mouth what the argument is. Gotcha. You know, in Andrew Klein's point of view, the budget director, um, they view sort of long-term structure, the structural health, the fiscal health of the city as paramount. So anytime they can... And they don't think that um, surpluses should be rolled over to the next year. They should always be put into um, the fund balance. This is right. going to get a little wonky, but it's to help with the – whenever you have a surplus, it should go to right. the – paying down the – Yeah, and that, I think that's sort of a larger accounting principle that, you know, budget wonks often believe in. But in the city council's point of view, in this emergency right. – In this situation, have, yeah. Yeah, record violence. And a lot of the violence, according to police, is – involving youth with the spike in carjackings, et cetera, um, that don't we need to fund these after-school programs? Don't we need to make sure that there are enough teachers uh, so that every kid can get a smaller class size and a better education? Um, so th they view that as a public safety issue as well. Right. Let me get a couple of quick callers in here. 410-319-8888. Ms. Johnson, you're on the air. Welcome. Yes, hi. Um, I live in a Hanlon Park area. Yeah. And... Um, it's a corner store there, and um, what's happening is the um, the males in their 30s look like they, well, I say 20s, 30s, they hang in that area every day, like clockwork, like they're going to a 9 to 5. And um, it, it's, you know, it's drug activity going on there. And, I mean, they just, it's about 30 of them or more. And... I'm not sure if it's marijuana or if it's heroin or whatever, but, I mean, it's going every day. And it's like the police ride past and they keep going or whatever. And, um, you know, people are complaining at meetings and, and nothing's being done. Very quick before I turn to our panel here. I mean, it's, I'm curious how that makes you feel. It's a terrible feeling. Because I'm, I am, um, I, I go out to work every day and, you know, and when I leave, they're there. And when I get home, they're there. And I'm like, oh, I, I hope nobody gets murdered today. Or, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a really eerie feeling. I, I don't like it. And I think, you know? I, I appreciate the call, Ms. Johnson, a great deal. I mean, I think people have to, you know, we have to hear every voice here. Yeah and understand what people are going through. Yes. If we're gonna make this change. And she deserves to feel safe. She deserves neighbors. to feel safe. She deserves Absolutely. to be able to go to the corner store or walk past that corner store. And what I would also say is those 30 men that are on, their cor on that corner, um, contrary to popular belief, they listen to someone, okay? There are folks who have their ear and have influence over their behavior. And if we are not engaging those folks then we will continue to have these problems. There are people that they refer to as old heads. Mm -hmm. they, are, they are out there, and no matter what we think of these young men, they all listen to someone. They take orders, they take a message from someone. 
And if we are not engaging those someones to whom they are listening, we will continue to have these problems. You have, you know, you have um, a friend of mine who's working on a totally different project uses the word influencers. You have to get to the influencers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you have to get to the influencers on the corner. Yes, sir. There's a man in this community, our community, his name is, uh, he's been on the show many times, I've known since the 90s from his work at Rosen Ashland, Clayton Guyton, one of our elders who has cut the murder rate in his neighborhood because he's there every day in the street talking to people and when a violence takes place between individuals in his community, what he does, he he runs a halfway house for men coming out of prison. Great. They're part of the process, but he goes to the perpetrator's family and person, he goes to the people who've been hurt, he pulls them together to say, we need to, let's not have retaliation, let's talk about what we can do to, to, to make things better. You know, you've got to, We've got to invest money yeah. in Clayton Guyton's yep. in yeah. every Find neighborhood them. in Baltimore. Yeah. And yes. what, what they're the, there. Yep. They exist in every neighborhood in this city. Create a strategy around it. And mm-hmm. what we've seen far too often, whether you talk about with the uprising uh, or, or other instances in Baltimore City and other cities, is that money is pouring into cities and it doesn't make it to the communities or to the organizations on the ground doing that work. Or as a friend of mine likes to say, that black pain becomes a white jobs program, right? Mm. So how do we make sure that we're... In, <laughs> Not in laughing at it, it's just... That's a lot. So how do we make sure that the money is going to those people who are doing those programs? Right now, I have a guy in my neighborhood who runs a sports mentoring program every single day, Monday through Friday, at a recreation center that technically isn't supposed to be open to youth, but he has 20 to 25 young people between the ages of 12 and 18 that come in there, and he teaches them life skills through athletics, and he's paying for it out of his own pocket, right? It's no funding, no support. Like, there's program, people out there who are doing this work that, are, that have no funding. And then we have people who are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this work and never step foot in some of these communities, right? So how do we make sure that the money is going to those places uh, to not make people rich, but to just give them the ability to do the work that they're doing and not have to struggle in doing it? Yes, or people who who leave the community as quickly as they can at 5 p.m. when their job is over Mm -hmm. because they're not at all connected to the community. They run to the county as soon as they can, as soon as they can punch out, because they're not invested in those communities. They're the people who unfortunately are, are receiving funding. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. We don't, the political leadership of this community, this city, and the philanthropic community, not all of it, big parts of it, do not trust regular people mm-hmm. with the money and the ability to do the work themselves. Right. We don't trust people to be able to do it. Yes. Well, there's been a lot of discussion of the whole, you know, nonprofit industrial complex from Dave on Love mm-hmm. and others. And, you know, I think that's something you have to take a good hard look at is, you know, how, how effective are some of these organizations? And even though they may be well-intentioned, is it really getting to the people that can make the difference yes. in the neighborhoods? Mm-hmm. Let's get a couple of callers in here. 410-319-8888. Let us go to Dwayne. You're on the air. Then we'll go to Hank. Dwayne, you're on the air. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. You know, this is a, a multi-headed hydro, of course, and mm-hmm. You know, there are, there are many different, you know, solutions that are going to have to be applied in order for it to be, uh, for, the, for the problem to, to, to decrease to a level that is acceptable. And, 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 and no, not one murder is acceptable. But, but at the end of the day, you know, it's going to boil down, you know, right now we got to, if we want something quick, we have to stop the bleeding. We have to stop the bleeding now, okay? And everything that has been mentioned is, is going to stop the bleeding in the long term. These are, and, the, and they're all great ideas, but the but the bleeding needs to stop now because if no one wants to go to these communities because the communities are safe, if if if, if, peop, if security guards at John Hopkins are saying, "Yeah, I'm just afraid that if I if I pull up and I look at somebody the wrong way, they're going to shoot me," that's a major problem. That is a major problem. That is a a major just that, that is that is that is people who live in the community are terrorized by their own community. That is the worst form of self-hate, okay? And so, you know, people hate the fact that, 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 that policing needs to be hard, but it needs to be hard. We gotta stop the bleeding now, okay? Because why is it that everybody wants to move out of the community? Because it's so bad, you know? So there will be no community as people rise up and leave, and the people that stay are terrorized by the very people that live there. We need a huge police presence. And we need to stop the bleeding now. Well, let's press what everybody said. Go ahead, Marge. You can start. Let's go around the room. Okay. So 
I have to address this this misnomer, right, that zero-tolerant policing works. It doesn't. Broken windows policing doesn't work. Unless you want to institute martial law in these communities, uh, we are going to continue to have these problems. And when you say uh, we haven't offered uh, solutions that would work today, I would beg to differ. Because if we engage the influencers, they can stop the violence on the street tomorrow. If we are engaging people who are influencing these young people, people who are influencing these folks that are standing on the corner, if they're saying, look, you cannot do this anymore, right? And I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot his name, but the gentleman that you mentioned, Clayton Guyton. Clayton Guyton, if we are engaging the Clayton Guytons tomorrow, we could reduce the level of violence and the level of murder in this city. Um, I, I can't disagree more with anyone who says that policing, more policing in the same way we've done it is the answer. Uh, it's been nothing but problematic everywhere that it's been tried in the country, not just Baltimore. Yeah. And, and, and it yields, you know, long-term returns in terms of, you know, violence later, problems later mm -hmm. that, you know, are only going to come back to, to create issues in five, ten years. So, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, there are things that we can do that are immediate. It's a question of figuring out how the, the communities actually work. I think the police yes. can play a role in that mm -hmm. in terms of actually doing the kind of community policing. You talked about getting to know who the people mm -hmm. are in the neighborhood. Yes. You know, that's key. But this business of, like, you know, broken windows policing and just showing up and starting locking up people randomly, I mean, that's just not going to help. And, and we, we no can make an immediate impact on this. And there's no statistics that show that the more money we spend on policing, the safer of a city we are. Because as we see, we're spending right. $480 million already, and we're not any safer of and, a city. And that's the main flaw of the GBC's argument. They're mm -hmm. making the argument we shouldn't cut the budget because, you know, policing will be less effective. Well, it's just not true, mm -hmm. you know. And I would say that, that, that just as I go back to the phones here and then go back to Luke, is, is that uh, people like Clayton Guyton, who we've mentioned now three times here, but it, he's a good friend and does some incredible work. He, in part, is successful because he is funded. Yes. And he is funded mm -hmm. by the Able Foundation to do his work. When they were introduced, to, when we introduced them together to each other 15 years ago, whatever that time was, a long time ago, they saw his effectiveness. They said they saw the numbers. They saw what he did by by numbers as well, because they're yes. number crunching people. Absolutely. And he's funded. People like Clayton need to be funded throughout mm -hmm. this city. And we need to build a lot more of them. To build yeah. a lot more of them. Mm -hmm. He's up at four in the morning with his men every day, in the street, cleaning their streets. They clean their own streets. They keep them safe. Senior citizens, people, to do uh, old women in this neighborhood say, I can walk down the street now in my community holding my pocketbook and know I'm going to have it when I get home. It can happen. Mm -hmm. So here's what I would pay like. less than police officers to do it. Yes, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> and they probably don't steal over time. Yeah. But that's, that's a conversation for another time. But here's what I would like to offer. Because uh, a, a large part of the problem with these smaller community organizations is that they do not have the numbers to demonstrate mm -hmm their effectiveness. And as a social scientist and a researcher, I would like to offer my services free of charge to any organization who is uh, looking to document their efforts, uh, who needs to put together some sort of numbers and have someone do some sort of evaluation for their organization to demonstrate uh, their effectiveness. I, I can do that. And that's, so true. that's very true. Organizations don't know how to crunch those numbers to put it together to go after funding Correct. in the long term. And um, it's, it's something that's definitely needed to help them understand. I'm going to get a couple of these calls in here, but Luke, do you have a quick thought before I hit these phones? Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing that is percolating in, in the next um, year is uh, the Children and Youth Fund, which is a $12 million fund uh, that was passed, uh, authorized by the city voters um, last year. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where this money goes. And I know um, Adam Jackson, who is the co-chair of that committee, has been um, pretty direct in saying that he wants it to go to uh, real grassroots organizations. Um, and we'll see if, if that does result in uh, some more funding for the very programs that you're talking about. And, and that's exciting because that's a pilot of participatory budgeting, um, which is something that I talked about frequently. And so if this is successful in getting to the programs that need it most and where the community sees the need, hopefully we can see that more throughout the city in the budget. And I'm going to make sure we get your announcement out here before we end the hour. Let me get a couple phones and you mm -hmm. can jump in with that, Joshua. 410-319-8888. Uh, let's go to uh, Greta. You're on the air. 
Hi, I thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. My name, hi, my name is Greta Willis. I'm the co-founder of the Kevin L. Cooper Foundation, which we started um, after the death of our youngest son, who's 14 years old. We have a free mentoring, tutoring, youth advocate, and social advocate program for all youth. Um, it is free. We do a free summer camp, a free uh, giveaway school supplies, events, all things for the youth, along with Fanon Hill from the Youth Resilience oh, yeah. Institute, right. who, you know, we're just doing awesome work within the community, because I believe that if you could just grab one and take a hold to that one person, as I was listening to your caller, he said that uh, he would give his phone numbers regarding helping the smaller entities be able to crunch numbers and show the work that we're doing. I would like to uh, work with you if you can work with our organization because we have done a lot and tremendous work here in Southwest Baltimore for you. So what we'll do, Greta, before, don't hang up, I'm going to ask Calvin Perry, a producer across the glass, to pick up the phone and get your contact information. Uh, we'll turn it over to Maurice. We'll also be t in touch with you. And um, I know the work of Fanon and Navasha. Mm -hmm. They're doing incredible work in Cherry Hill and other communities in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, and and there's, there are other... Uh, they. For them to get funded, they had to be recognized by Kellogg <laughs> to be fund them from on outside the city to fund their work in Cherry Hill and the other community they're working in. I mean, and they do phenomenal work as artists in a community and bring and, and bring stability through their artwork. I mean, there are numbers of ways to do this. So I mean, that's yeah. and you. you I'll be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Blaze. Conley Duggan and uh, Steve Dixon and the folks at Penn North Community Res Resource Center, uh, the work that they're doing in the community yep. and inviting me in to conduct research that I've been doing there for years now. Um, they're a real asset, and organizations like them need to be funded. They need money. Let's get another quick call in here. We're not, I'm not gonna, you're going to get out there, Joshua, because in just two seconds, let you announce this stuff that's important for people to hear. 410-319-8888. Emmanuel, you're on the air. Yes, how you doing? Very well. Good morning. All right. Yeah, I, I sort of got something to say about, you know, of we're losing our generations in the school. You know, a lot of a lot of these schools are really under the wire, un, unmanageable. You know, the kids come to school with really no learning on their mind. Why they come there like that, I don't know. It's probably a home situation. But anyway, my point is, Okay, it's one thing to deal with the streets, okay, and the problems in the streets. But at the same time, with these unmanageable schools that we don't even hear about, which I'm sure you probably know about some of them, we're adding to the problem because the kids aren't doing any schoolwork. The city demands that you still give them a passing grade. So how can they get out here and be a viable human being if we don't have hall monitors in the schools, you know, the, the classrooms are unmanageable, and, and that serves to a point of, okay, you're holding a teacher accountable for a test score when the kids won't even settle down enough to, to, to absorb any learning. And this goes on day after day after day after day. You know, it's ruining teachers' careers because I guess whatever budget the school has, they can't afford to have any supportive personnel in the building along with the teachers. You know, if they come to school not respecting the teachers or not respecting the realm of learning, then we're, we're throwing more fuel to the fire of, of the mayhem in the streets. So let, let me ask Joshua Harris to jump in. You can also talk about what's about to happen with your organization because it affects what he's talking about, I believe. Yeah, I think so. There's a, there's a, a problem, of course. We, we know we had a deficit in education, and teachers are not necessarily equipped to deal with all the ills that our young people are coming into the classrooms with, right? Um, we need a, a, either to increase the training of teachers or to have appropriately equipped community resource uh folks in the classroom uh, that are there to help manage that. And some of the schools, our community schools, do have that. They have folks that deal with that and manage that work and act as guidance counselors and as, uh, help to find parent, help parents find employment and so many different things. Um, but we need to see that in more of our schools. And we're seeing 
um, Dr. Santelisis is moving to that. She's a big fan of community schools, and we're seeing more and uh, more resources put that. But with the deficit in the budget, um, that is something that isn't moving as quickly either. Well, and why don't you talk a bit about this before we run out of time? That's what you want you. Yeah, and so f- I work for Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity, which we're a community service fraternity uh, that's been around for 110 years. Dr. Martin Luther King, Thurgood Marshall, we're all members. We have six members in Congress, and our headquarters is here in Baltimore City, right on 23rd and St. Paul. Uh, and so this summer we're bringing our national convention here to Baltimore um, because we recognize the need here um, for not only change but for black male presence, right? Uh, and so the theme of our convention is the urgency of now, and so we've been doing service projects leading up to our convention, including where we partnered during Suibo Festival um, to do Kids Alley and work with youth and have black male presence there. Uh, we have a, an upcoming service initiative with uh, Penn North Safe Zone and Miss Erica, uh, where we're going to do uh, She's 100. She's doing great work over there. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to be doing 100, yep. um, 100 kids, 100 men, 100 books. And so we're going to come out and we're going to be reading to the youth and interacting with them and giving them uh, something that they may not see, uh, college-educated black men in the community and so uh, there's several other projects. So if anyone is interested in participating or joining or donating books for that initiative, uh, you can email me at jharris at apa1906.net. That's jharris at apa1906.net. Or you can just drop the books off at 2313 St. Paul Street, um, right there at our headquarters. And that's going to be on June 22nd. We're going to do that. If you're interested in more information, feel free to email or stop by our office. Well, you just solved the problem for my house. <laughs> you got some Valerie books. has been saying to me, get into this box of books. We need to get them out of this house. They've had too many books. So we're going to be dropping off tons of books at your Br- place. Bring them on down. <laughs> we're definitely going to do that. So th- this, uh, we're just about out of time here, unfortunately. There's so many you know, people calling in and so much more to talk about here. But I, I think that uh, first, Luke Broad, Broad, I want to thank you for the work you and some of your fellow reporters are doing at The Sun. You're writing some really important stories. Appreciate your work a great deal. And thank you for being part of this program and calling in today from being out in the field working. David Troy, thank you for the community activism you do oh, and the service you do here in, this, in our community. Co-founder of 410 Labs, and uh, you check out the Facebook page, City Voters, uh, and just say, I want to be part of the conversation and join it. Some of those important conversations on Facebook are taking place there. Yeah. And on Lawrence Brown's uh, page, yeah. uh, Embrace. 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 Uh, he's doing remarkable work. Uh, his black butterfly uh, yes. and, and white Dr. L has Brown. become part of the nomenclature <laughs> now because of the work he's doing. He's doing profound work. Join those two discussions on Facebook. I look at them every day to get ideas about what we have to do. Uh, and Brother Harris, always good to have you in the studio. Thank you so much for coming once again. Thank you for the, your commitment to our community. And good to meet you, Maurice Van. I appreciate I'm it. I'm glad you were on the show today. This is great. Thank you so much. And I'd, uh, I'd like to also thank uh, Dr. Brown. His work is inspirational. <laughs> uh, it's the, he has the type of impact that all social scientists hope to have. Yeah. And uh, so... Um, that's it. And we have books for books. Or sorry, we'll get into that later. But thank you all four for being here on this thank program. You. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our assistant producer on the work today is Calvin Perry. Production assistant is Nadi Ramlagan. Our engineer is the incomparable Andre Melton. Our theme music is by Juan Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talkatsteinershow.org. And to podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. 